Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the podcast with myself, Galen Stops from 360T. And I am delighted to be joined today by Peter Lewis, who is the director of Peter Lewis Consulting and the presenter of Money Talks, which is one of the most popular English language radio shows in Hong Kong. Peter, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome, Kelly. Good morning. Lots and lots of questions for you. I have to admit, um, you have your own podcast series, which I've listened to, which is excellent. So I'm a little bit nervous to be interviewing you today, Peter. I feel like perhaps it should be the other way around. No, no, this is, this is <laughs> fine this way. It's more relaxing for me. <laughs> So first thing I want to ask you, which is I'm based in New York. And so obviously, you know, one of the, the big stories that is sucking up every ounce of air in the news is Joe Biden's win in what's proven to be a highly contentious U.S. presidential election. From where you're sitting in Hong Kong and the people you speak to there, do they consider a Biden win as a positive or a negative for China and China's economy? Well, it depends upon who you ask. And I think the jury is out on that uh, at the moment, because first of all, we don't exactly know what an incoming Biden administration's approach is going to be to China. What we do know is, I mean, if we summarize the Trump's administration's approach, maybe not just to China, but to Asia overall, it's really promoted very much pro-market policies leading to growth and pushing investment into the US. So this move to move supply chains back from China and from Asia in general into the US, that's been combined with an increasingly aggressive containment of China, which has led to direct confrontations in a number of areas, including trade and technology. And I think also this Uh, administration is very much characterized by the fact that it doesn't believe in multilateralism. It believes in unilateralism in relations with the rest of Asia, apart from maybe a few security type issues. So there's been an increasing decoupling in trade, in technology, in foreign direct investment, uh, which in some ways has actually benefited some parts of Asia. And the Trump administration has also been demanding countries really to take sides. Who does it support? Does it support the US? Is it an ally of the US? Is it an ally of China? Whilst at the same time, it's also been demanding allies like South Korea and Japan to pay more for things like US troop presence in the region. So the big question is, how are things going to change um, when Joe Biden comes in as the next president on January the 20th? Now, we have to remember that in his campaign, Joe Biden himself took a fairly tough line against Beijing. He's referred to President Xi Jinping as a thug. He's vowed to lead an international move to pressure, isolate and punish China. His campaign labelled Beijing's actions against Muslims in Xinjiang province as genocide, which was actually something that the Trump administration never did. It never took that step. So Mr. Biden hasn't laid out a detailed China strategy, but all the indications are that it's going to continue a tough approach to Beijing. What maybe we do expect to be different, and in fact, he was talking a bit about that today, is that when it comes to trade, he believes in multilateralism. He thinks that you need to have trade partners, and the best way to confront China is to do it with allies, with partners, so that people in Asia don't think that China is the only game in town, which was the words he used earlier today. 
as you know, China and 14 other countries have just signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. The US isn't a part of that. So it very much leaves the US on the sidelines in terms of trade policy in the region. And the big question is, will Joe Biden try and join what's left of the TCPPP, which the Trump administration pulled out of when it first took office? So there's a lot of question marks about what the approach is going to be on trade, on foreign policy overall, on things like technology. I suspect it's going to be a mixture of continuing with some of the policies that we've seen already. And there was that Axios report yesterday that was saying that President Trump's going to take even more steps against China in his remaining days of office, which would make it difficult for the Biden administration to reverse. So things could get worse for China and for the region here before they get better. Interesting. So I was listening to one of your excellent podcasts recently, and one statistic that you brought up really jumped out at me. You cited a number that China's trade surplus with the US is 47% higher than when Trump took office, which I wasn't aware of and was frankly surprised by. So I guess my question to you is that given that the Trump administration had this seeming fixation on the trade deficit slash surplus, and this was how they were measuring the success or not of their trade war, Does this figure rather suggest that China is winning or has already won the trade war? I wouldn't say that China is winning or has even won the trade war. What it does tell you is that uh, sanctions really haven't worked. And if you look, for example, at the latest trade data out of China, exports surged. They were up over 11% in October. Imports grew much more slowly, at 4.7% year on year. So the China export machine is still in many ways in full swing. Now, partly that's due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been importing a lot of medical technology, PCE equipment to other countries around the world. But it's very clear that trade sanctions haven't had the effect of reducing that trade deficit. I wouldn't say at all, though, that China has won because enormous damage has been done to China by things like the Huawei and the ZTE bans which have really diminished China's ability to get access to sensitive technology. And it isn't at the stage yet where it could develop that technology internally. So it's left Huawei and ZTE in a very difficult position. Huawei's having trouble now sourcing the chips that it needs for its technology. The ZTE bands, which the Trump administration has been quite successful in getting other allies in Europe and elsewhere to join in with, have also done enormous damage to both ZTE and the country's technological advancement. So there have been some successes, but yes, you're right, it hasn't been a success in terms of bringing down the trade surplus. And when you think that you go back four years ago, that was really, if you like, one of the number one goals of the Trump administration policy here in the region. While we're on the subject of trade then, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how has the strength of the Chinese won impacted, or not perhaps, trade in the APAC region? Well, in terms of, if you look at that trade data, that's come despite a surge in yuan in recent months. I mean, the Chinese yuan is at two and a half year highs. Despite that, China's exports are growing. The trade surplus with the US is growing as well. But it's also been growing with other parts of the region as well. Clearly, China's concerned about that. The PBOC has signaled that it doesn't want to see the yuan strengthen too much further from here. 
But at the same time, you know, part of the reason for that is also dollar weakness. It's not just UN strength. The, the, the US dollar index has been falling over the last few months as well. So the, the yuan hasn't brought down the trade surplus. It's somewhat interesting that we're seeing this as well, because if memory serves me correct, the constant accusation coming from the Trump administration was always that China was manipulating its currency to push down the value. Yeah, well, actually, if anything, the evidence suggests otherwise. When the, the yuan was falling, the Chinese, uh, the PBOC, stepped in several times to try and slow down that decline. So the PBOC doesn't want to see wild swings in either direction, actually. It doesn't want to see a big devaluation of the currency, but it's equally uncomfortable, maybe with the surge that we've seen over the last few months in the currency as well. One thing that I'm very curious about that I want to put to you is about how and where you see regional centers in terms of financial markets developing in APAC, right? Because in Europe, clearly London is the biggest financial hub. In the Americas, you know, the market in New York dwarfs most other things around. In Asia, it seems a little bit less clear to me. I mean, when I think of just FX specifically, right, we see Singapore is pushing very hard right now to build up its local market there. Tokyo is the traditional FX trading hub, while Hong Kong was more on the equity side. But now you've got Shanghai that's growing. Could that impact Hong Kong's position? There's all these different financial centers jostling potentially for place. Do you see one of them ending up preeminent anytime soon? Well, unlike Europe and the US, right now we don't have one center in Asia that is dominant for all the different asset classes Mm -hmm. um, that you can trade in the same way that New York and London is in Europe. If you look at equities, then for sure... Hong Kong is the third largest market in the world. It's part of its success has come from all these IPOs that have been coming here over the past few months. A lot of Chinese companies that are looking to raise overseas capital coming to Hong Kong. But even Hong Kong can't claim to have it all its own way in terms of equities because Shanghai is trying very hard to catch up. They launched the star market a year ago, which has been enormously successful. A lot of big companies have listed there. Had the anti-IPO gone ahead, it would have listed on both the Hong Kong market and the star market in Shanghai. There's also Shenzhen, and Shenzhen has relaxed the rules to make it easier, particularly for smaller companies and technology-type companies to go and list there. So Shenzhen is also pushing as well. Singapore absolutely can have a claim in terms of, of FX. But in many ways, Singapore is more of an asset management hub rather than maybe a capital markets hub. And then, of course, there's Tokyo, although Tokyo does seem to have stagnated a bit. I remember I lived in Tokyo in the 1990s, and it was without doubt the main financial center in, uh, in Asia. But you couldn't claim that now. And sort of Tokyo has sort of been left a little bit on the sidelines, although new Prime Minister Suga wants to try and change that. He wants to try and revive Tokyo as a major financial hub in Asia. And one of the things he's looking at is uh, here in Hong Kong that maybe the national security law might frighten firms off and uh, get them to go and relocate to Tokyo. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that. I mean, do you see that as potentially being detrimental to Hong Kong's position? Or does the fact that it's drawing in some ways closer to China actually benefit it? Well, there are certainly, if you're a foreign firm here, and if you talk to the American Chamber of Commerce, They did a survey of their businesses out here. People are certainly worried. Many firms have drawn up contingency plans and individuals have drawn up plan Bs about what to do 
and where to go if things were to deteriorate further. So far, they haven't pressed the button on those plans, but they are certainly watching things very closely. They're worried about, can they continue doing business in the way in which they used to before? Is there certainty of law, rule of law here anymore? What, what is the, uh, the position of the independence of courts here and the judiciary from the government and from mainland China? So firms are very worried that there are a couple of things that help Hong Kong. The main one is it has its own currency and it has free flow of capital. And also information still flows very easily. We have you know, Facebook, we have Twitter here, which you can't access on the mainland. Now, if that was to change, if the media was clamped down on so that you couldn't access social media platforms, if capital controls were introduced, then that would very much change Hong Kong's position as an international financial centre. And firms would absolutely then be considering quite seriously what their next step should be. Okay. And looking at the numbers in China, the latest numbers I saw is China's GDP is set to grow by about 2.5% this year compared to last year, which is in pretty stark contrast to a lot of other large major economies right now. Is this relatively fast rebound going to provide a significant lift to other economies in the region? Or has reduced cross-border trade, travel, interaction, etc. simply left economies more siloed than before? It is helping other economies around the region. As you mentioned, China's economy is forecast to grow maybe just a little bit more than 2% this year. But given everything that's happened in China and around the world, that's quite an astonishing performance. It's going to be one of the few countries in the world that will show positive growth for 2020. Now, depending upon where you look, economies have recovered quite a lot of the lost output since the COVID-19 crisis started. The US has probably recovered about two thirds of it. Europe, maybe about half. China has done better than both of them. I wouldn't say it's recovered 100% of its lost output, but it's recovered you know, not far off of that. And it's certainly going to show positive growth this year. But actually, it isn't the only place. Taiwan is also going to show positive growth this year. And Taiwan has done even better than China in containing the COVID-19 pandemic and maintaining economic growth in the face of all these difficulties. So Taiwan clearly has been a beneficiary. South Korea also, to a certain extent, its economy hasn't suffered anywhere near as much as some of the others in the region. Its exports are picking up once again. So maybe it won't get to positive growth, but it won't be far away. And particularly Taiwan and South Korea, they do very much benefit from a recovery in China being two major exporting economies that rely very much on things like uh, semiconductors and other technology being exported around the region. Peter, thank you so much for all of that. Thank you for your insights and thank you for your perspective. I certainly found that very interesting. Thank you very much, Gallen. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.